Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to View with Mike G, the show of life, the show of whiskey, the show of being an entrepreneur and what that actually means to your friends and family. Today we've got a great guest, the master blender for Heaven's Door, Ryan Perry. He has his hands in so many different things, worked at Diageo for a while, has all the good whiskey, and now has a great new project that Bob Dylan is a part of as well, even though in this chat we don't talk about it. You can find that information anywhere on the internet. This is stuff about Ryan, the man, the myth, the legend that you can't find anywhere else. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Ryan Perry, Master Blender for Heaven's Door. Relationships are really how everything genuine and real gets done these days. So. I you know, wouldn't change that for the world. It's probably one of the few decision, few good decisions I made at such a young age. You know, looking back when I was eighteen. Um, so yeah, like you know, Michigan State when I when I attended there was fifty thousand kids, uh, which can seem overwhelming for some. But I was eager to jump into that and kind of expose myself because I knew there was a world out there that I, I had never experienced before and. Luckily, I think it probably paid off in, in a lot of different ways. And I have a ton of friends and genuine connections I can show for it. Um, so I think, you know, like I said, I think it was, it was a great decision and kind of a risk, I guess, that's paid off a little bit. Yeah. You know, relationships, they're the key to this industry. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the bits with Angel Envy, Angel's Envy, which we'll talk about, meeting Bob Dylan, all these things. So, but at its core, do you consider yourself a people person? Do you like being out there on stage, so to speak, and meeting, kissing babies, shaking hands, I guess? <laughs> um, I, I think I, I do. Uh, I think I'm, na- I, I, I still haven't determined if I'm an introvert or an extrovert. I, I've taken uh, personality tests enough and I think I'm 50-50, so it probably depends on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get that energy from being around people where I could, you know, stay up till 3am, even if I wasn't drinking spirits, being around people. And if I'm at home, I can go to bed at 7pm, you know, so I I appreciate both sides of it. Um, But the camaraderie for me, I think is, uh, you know, something I I just thrive off of. Um, And I, I just get so much more from being with people. And look, this Zoom era that's taken us by fire is totally cool as an alternative, but you know, I'm one of those people that just like, I can't wait to yeah. <laughs> get, get out and get on an airplane and go sit in a boardroom with someone and, and like actually have a, a, a meaningful conversation. So I would say I definitely default to more of a people person than less, but I, I definitely am not overtly, uh, you know, extroverted, I guess, to, to say the least. It's like a blind. Yeah, yeah. So talking about the socialization piece, which is for some of us, one of the reasons we get into this industry, right? To yeah. be around people, to share. Really, it's about sharing, right? And having to adapt so sharply for over a year now under 
lockdown, what kinds of things are you doing to stay connected? I know you've got Zoom, but are you reaching out to people on the phone more? Are you texting more folks? I mean, I, I talk on the phone six to eight hours a day, oh, like wow. no, no exaggeration. I mean, but that I say that between Zoom and phone, I'm on six to eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the written communication is fine, but like, I'm the guy that's like only touch an email once. If I can't, if I can't knock it out in one time, I'm not going to pick it back up and get into this like eight chain email thing because it just becomes so redundant and nothing you know gets done. And I can feel it just making circles around my computer and it demotivates me. Uh, oh. So, so I, I'm very much a like, and, and I just think so much is lost in translation, uh, even with texts and like I have guys that I text with for a decade and we still think we're still talking about two different things saying with our words. And, you know, you, you, the, the funniest texts are the ones you laugh at that you type yourself. And, you know, some other person's like, dude, that was so lame. Like, okay. But so I just, I think it's key to like have that at least phone conversation. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm very much not a like live behind the machine type person at all. I just think, you know, when running an organization, it's been a key kind of aspect as a way to, to work with people because, um, you know, email is just a smokescreen that doesn't do anyone benefit, in my opinion. So I'm very much that verbal communicator if, if, as long as I'm you know, not sitting on an airplane without a cell phone connection. Yeah. So going back to what really is the simplicity of communication. Right. Because actually smoke train is a great word for it because email is actually more complicated than calling you and talking for 20 seconds. Right. So it's just kind of back and forth. Do the outdoors, do just running, doing things outside and in nature. Does that help you also? Or are you more kind of more? Um, I I, I wish I had, you know, 500 acres of land around me at all time. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the term forest bathing before. No, it isn't like going and immersing yourself totally into the woods and the benefits that go along with it. Mm. And I I subscribe to it. And unfortunately I just don't get to do it enough. So when I'm stuck, you know, and isolated, uh, I live in a big city. I live in the city of Chicago, like in the city. Uh, so I, I rely upon those weekends away to give me the relief I need. And I, you know, haven't been getting them as much as I'd like to. And I can, feel that effect on me, you know, in every part of my life. So, you know, the outdoors, I grew up going to Northern Michigan, which is, you know, God's country in its truest form. Um, and, you know, going on a lake, doing all that. And I, I think that just is essential to like, just cleansing your system more mentally, obviously than anything. So, I'm I'm that person that needs uh, a lot of that in my life and just really think I don't even get enough in normal circumstances, let alone, you know, through the pandemic. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a vital thing kind of simplifying and taking these technologies away from us in a sense, you know, that was something, you know, Texas had shit weather last week and I was out without power still have my phone. I, I, I was guilty to some extent, but it didn't have heat. And all I could think about was just existing. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of yeah. an interesting feeling, but I, I want to talk a little bit. So I, I grew up in Canton actually a, a little oh. bit. So I'm not, it was when I was a tad bit younger, but I knew what that life was kind of like. So for you, if I remember correctly, were your folks working for General Motors? 
Yeah. So you're in Canton, Michigan, not Ohio, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, yeah. So the, I was back and forth between Flint and Detroit, uh, which was, you know, the general motors kind of capitals of the U S or the world, I guess at that point. Um, so yeah, I was kind of lived right in the middle in a pretty rural area, uh, to, you know, kind of split the difference between the two. Yeah. Were you a writer? Were you into science? What kinds of things really interested you being in rural Michigan? Um, I was an outdoor all the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> talking to some of our sales guys today and they're like, you know, my 15 year old isn't into like when I was 15, I was like, dude, I can't wait till I can like find a cornfield and go sit out there around a campfire and like, you know, deny someone a, a, a beer, at least like, you know, it's like that whole life. That's what I was looking forward to. Not these kids like that. That doesn't, I mean, it's like, who can I, you know, play on Fortnite now? But <laughs> I, I, so that for me was just like, I was outside doing things all the time. Um, and just didn't know any other way. Cause the alternative was be with your parents in your house yeah. and like maybe have four or five channels on your TV that, were like, you know, daytime TV or something you've already seen. Like it was repeats of nonsense. So that was how I spent a lot of my time. So I, I was into, I played a lot of sports uh, and through, through high school. And then, you know, it was like that I, I can't compete in any collegiate level by any means. So it's like, hang it up, use it for recreation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that's when I yeah, exposed myself in different ways in college uh, but I, yeah, I was, I was, I was a big sports guy and, and going with the outdoor theme. I mean, I, golf was my favorite sport, um, living in the city that doesn't happen really at all. Um, and with life hitting me in the face, uh, I actually delivered, uh, we had our second kid uh, a week ago. So I have, I have a newborn, um, next to me in bed now, which prevents a lot of, uh, physical, uh, doing a lot of physical activity during the day cause you're recovering, but. Um, so yeah, I was like no screen time really at all besides Nintendo 64 occasionally. Yeah. Which Mario Kart 64 is still one of the greatest games of all time. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it is the, the competition you can get from four player Mario Kart and, <laughs> you know, playing people that don't know how to drift properly. It's like taking candy. It's like taking candy from a baby. It's, uh, it's amazing. So yeah, I, I, Mario Kart is top three for me by far. There, there was, I think you love this when, when things, because if, if I think you make your way to Texas pretty often. I know Chris Hart had, had you on his show too. And there's a bar that was on East, it's in East Austin when they were still open. And they had, I can't remember, Switch, I guess is the, whatever, the little yeah. box. I got to competitively play Mario Kart in a bar in Austin, Texas. And it was, you know what comes out of people when they play Mario Kart. There, there is, there is nothing better. Uh, and like Birio cart, right. That's, that's <laughs> right? so, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I love the, uh, the competition that comes from it. I mean, you just have to risk, like you have to have a couple controllers in reserve. So when someone throws it against the wall and they lose, especially after they've had a couple beers, you gotta be, you gotta be prepared for that. It's, you know, no truer words. Yeah. You always have to be prepared for rage, basically. <laughs> but the, the only negative thing, anyone that picks Luigi and Mario Kart is questionable. 
So you got to be weary of your friend. Like if you're going to play Mario Kart and someone picks Luigi, you're like, <laughs> are you a terrorist? Like what, what is the deal? So it's a, it's a true ch- test of character on your character, uh, on your character, your Mario selection, like in its truest form. You know, it's funny. I, and I like Waluigi because yeah. Luigi, you're right. He's a little too straight laced. He doesn't even have the right build to, uh, you think, to get the, the gravity display. Special for him. Yeah. No, he's just a guy. And that's fine. Right. But Waluigi, that guy gets shit done. Yeah. And he's got a villain aspect to him that make, it gives him a cutting edge that Luigi needs. So it's like, <laughs> why would you ever pick Luigi in a competitive? I mean, if you're just like going to drink a beer with some guy, you'd pick Luigi because he's probably a really nice down-to-earth guy. But if you're trying to win a race of eight people that you're throwing shit at your competitors, you're going to pick Waluigi. <laughs> yes. And, you know, Ryan, there, there'd be, there could be something to this in the interview process when you bring people onto your team where you're yeah. like, okay, which Mario Kart character are you? And then anybody that picks Luigi, as long as they don't know that's why you're asking, they're out of contention. Yeah. And if they pick Bowser, they're automatic CEO candidate. You know, <laughs> they can they can terminate anyone and uh, you know ask tough questions to anyone. So yeah, it's, and I think uh, I, I think you're, so. The, the last one is I think Yoishi that that's HR people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I no question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know the vast amount of three or four, but you have such a your hands in so many different projects, which is really incredible. But this drive to do things on your own terms as an entrepreneur, I got that kind of bug from my dad. He owned a restaurant when he was younger, different marriage and stuff. But did you learn this, this, what we call entrepreneurialism? Was was your dad or your mom or the family, anybody pushing you to do this? No, I think I just, it, it was in me from like the get-go like my my mom would always like tell us like some pretty lame stories she's just like i i would i look being in a small like i went to chicago uh when i was really young on a, on the train i took the train from mid-michigan to chicago and i like it, it was like you know seeing this world outside of everything you knew that was so eye-opening and i went there and my mom was like I was like asking everyone on the L train in Chicago what they did for a living because I wanted to know what I needed to do to live in this big city because I kind of wanted to escape this small town because I I don't know, I just kind of felt cooped up there. So like my travels, I guess, and seeing life outside of my very, very isolated uh, life in mid-Michigan, I think drove me to like want to just work so hard to be able to do whatever I wanted to do you know, outside of my bubble, I guess. Yeah. So I think it was much less like one person that influenced me and more so like what I thought I could do with hard work and effort and how that would allow me to kind of afford a life that was different. Cause when you're small and when you're like young and a teenager and whatever, like all you want to do is get out of your hometown yeah. and then you get old, have kids and you're like, Oh, I want to move back home. And like, see my parents and get help and, you know, need. And so it's like, you know, very, that, that cycle for me on the ramp up of like wanting to move out of my hometown was like exponential, I guess. And I just felt like seeing these grander things and people living a life that was so busy was 
such an appeal to me um, that, that like just brought out this work ethic and drive that was like just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger as I got older. That's incredible. I mean, they, I, I had it in a different way and caught it in a different place, but mm. it drives us. And so, you know, now in this place today, regardless of COVID or whatnot, and these, these, con- these contacts, these relationships, these companies, the money that you've amassed, do mm. you feel satisfied? Um, no, I, not, not at all. I mean, I, I, I don't, I certainly have a financial drive to, 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 you know, be able to feed myself and my family. Um, you know, the money I've made in my short career, which isn't much, um, you know, if, if I get any, any, like, you know, if there's any success or exit we've had on a company, it just goes back in and is like, how do I, you know, do something else? It's not like, I don't go like, you know, buy a new car or whatever. Like, it's like, how can I put that back in, start a new venture and make it, you know, 10 times more valuable than it was before. Um, and so I'm never like looking like, when's that big exit so I can get, you know, a million dollars in my bank account. It's like, it's all about the process for me. And, you know, once the end starts coming, it's actually kind of sad in a way because it's like, it's like, oh, this could be it. And that was so much fun. And I learned so much from building it and it being over is kind of like, you know, it's a little bit emotional in a negative way because you don't want it to end because it's been such a big part of your life. I mean, when you're kind of an entrepreneur and my take, it's a total life thing. It's not just like I have work and then I have my personal life. Like it's like I'm borrowing from my personal life always to give into my work and vice versa. So it's very much a lifestyle, which sounds a little bit cliche, but living it, there's no other way to slice it, you know? So I, it's very refreshing to hear you talk about it like that because mm-hmm. in a sense, and, and get personal here for a moment, that it, it is around you and in you and within you all the time, like a disease, mm-hmm. right? And you leave work, you still have the disease. You're sitting there with your partner, you still have the disease. And it, for me, it, do you ever have a problem being present? to those people close to you, because of course you have so many things that you're investing. I wish you could ask my wife that because she would, she would need a three hour extension onto your time. Cause she can't get over. She's like, did you just hear anything I said? And I'm, you know, she's talking to me. I, I'm just always like not living presently every year. My number one goal is live more presently, turn off your phone, get off your email, but even when my phone's off, I'm wondering what's on my phone that I'm not looking at, you know, or it's like, what am I missing? So it is, you know, a disease that doesn't seem to have a cure in any form. And, uh, you know, like an exit of a company is kind of just a stage. It's not an end by any means, you know, it's a, it's a small breaking, it's a small like transition point to whatever you're you know, going to do next. And, you know, it's like, there is no amount of money for me right now that I would retire on because I, I'm not going to retire, right? There's no amount because like, what am I going to do? Like, I could go play golf for a couple of days and then by Thursday, I'd be like dying, you know, like, like give me anything to do. I'll work for free at this point. You know what I mean? So Dude, t- it's, t- it's, it's weird. My dad retired a couple of years ago. 
And the thing is, I'm, uh, I suspect we're both creative, you know, I, not, I play music, but I also make spirits and I'm now starting to work with corn and, and got a bunch of things going on. And I think about the, co- the concept of retiring and I'm thinking to myself, how the fuck am I just going to sit around and like hang out? Mm-hmm. Like I can't, it's just, it's, it's, it appalls me, but mm-hmm. my dad retired, but he always was a part of a company. He wasn't necessarily a creator. So his retirement life has amounted to playing golf three to four times mm-hmm. a week, you know, but at the end of the day, he's still seeking some kind of meaning. Yeah. Right. And, and mm-hmm. when you talk about the end of a company getting acquired or selling it or starting something new, that at least gives us this living, breathing thing that will always introduce new obstacles, right? It's like, mm-hmm. a, it's like a child, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that's interesting, but the, there's no way you're going to settle down and retire when you can't, is there? No, but you know, it's, it's funny. It's like when those companies are deemed like successful or you have a financial uh, exit, the whole time I'm just thinking about what I could have done differently and what I did wrong, oh. not like what I did right. Like I know, you know, the things that happened to benefit the exit or the transition, but my mind always goes to like what I could have done differently to make it more valuable or exit sooner. And so I'm always like, that doesn't, to me, that that doesn't like, it's not like sunshine and rainbows for me. Like that's like, great, did what I was supposed to do. I achieved the plan, but like, could I have done it better? Or was there something I made, you know, a mistake here two years ago? Like, and that's just where my brain goes, which is kind of like part of the same mentality, but a little bit more like, you know, um, it's just a little bit more primal instinct, I guess, than like just celebrating, you know, the success. Yeah, that's interesting. So I don't really look back because there's nothing I can do to change it you know, and, but there, there is this being able to move forward, I think requires a couple of skills. Uh, I wouldn't say it's being fearless, but it is being without extraneous fear. Mm-hmm. So for you, when you make decisions, which have probably a very hefty price tag, most of the time, mm-hmm. do you have fear? Do you second guess yourself? Cause it sounds like looking retroactively you do, but when you're making those tough decisions, do you get in your own way? Um, I think I, I, when the decision's made, I don't look back. I spend time to analyze the decision before I make it. I think, um, I, I, I do have some, like, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I guess I, I practice mindfulness pretty aggressively, um, mainly through meditation. And so I think I have a lot of pre thinking before I do anything. Um, which gives me the confidence that once I make a decision, I'm using, I'm, you, you know, I'm making the best decision I can at that time, which, you know, leaves a lot of, uh, it, it prevents me from having baggage about whether or not I made the right decision. Uh, so I think I don't, I don't struggle with that. Um, you know, I, I have other things, but you know, that decision-making and living with it and saying, you know, it is what it is and I'll, I'll, take the, the positive and negatives with, the, with whatever decision I make. I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that, uh, you know, requirement, I guess, as a business leader uh, currently. Does that muscle 
like because i think you think our minds are a muscle the more you use it the more that you unlock certain kinds of abilities to analyze things that it gets stronger mm -hmm. and so as you keep growing as a professional as a leader does that muscle get better your decision making muscle yeah i i, I think so i think it it gets um faster uh and part of that i think is the confidence in using it um i, I think you realize that the worst thing you can do is make no decision at all. And then you're in this flux period and things are going worse than if you made the wrong decision. Um, cause at least you've made a decision. It is what it is. And there's fallout, you know, or not, and then you have to fix it or not. Yeah. Um, but the worst thing you can do is think about it for too long or deliberate or be indecisive. And then the opportunity has gone. People have suffered through it. And there's just a lot more negative things that, you know, result in not making a decision than making the wrong one. I, yeah, I completely agree. And this, I'm going to tie this into the mentorship you're doing with at, at DePaul, but I feel like people talk about their ideas a lot, mm -hmm. but that inaction, which was a day turns into weeks, turns into months, and then you get older and then months turn into years and it just goes at the same rate, you yeah. know? So do you see much... Yeah. I'm sure you see probably a lot of, is there a lot of fear in the people that you mentor? Or um, well, you know, uh, yes and no. I think there's fear of the unknown um, and lack of experience because they're young. Mm -hmm. But dude, young people are also fearless, you know, like they don't have anything to lose. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they don't have, and I'm not saying it's only young people with my mentorship, I'm mentoring undergrad and early grad students. And they're like, they, they don't have anything to lose. They don't have families to feed for the most part. And they have grand ideas and they, um, you know, think they know what they need to get there. Um, so, you know, I think there's some pretty solid fearlessness amongst, um, that kind of younger group of entrepreneurs, which, you know, like, like you hear about people adopting a dog and it's like, you know, they saved me. I didn't save them. You know, mm -hmm. like the, the like inspiration I get from working with these people, they're like, Oh my God, thank you for spending 90 minutes. Like you taught me like a whole semester's worth of class. I'm like, dude, you just like, I'm leaving here. I'm going to go pull out my laptop and like do like 10 things I that have been on my to-do list for like the last six months, because just like, talk to you guys like you guys just really don't like like idgaf like that acronym came from like these 18 year old kids that can do whatever they want so you know i think it's inspiring to work with them and i i always get i think more so more out of them than they get from me although it, they really feel like you know I'm, I'm giving them this mentorship so it's amazing uh, mutually beneficial relationship yeah i love that yeah because every conversation you have this is something too is I think that I miss the strangers at the bar thing, mm. right? Because I, having interviewed people from all walks of life at this point, different income, different places in the world, I never judge anybody anymore. Mm. I might've had maybe a lens of it when I was a kid, you know, but now I look at it and it's like, everybody is just so open, you know, and your door seems like, despite your, your title, the brands you've worked with, the, the investments that you run, your door is always open, isn't it? Yeah. And that is, was that something that 
how about this? Why do people feel like others in what they deem as successful? We use air quotes when we say success because that's completely yeah. perception, right? Why yeah. do they feel like th- it's not a flat playing field? Do you have any understanding why that might be? Why, why that might be? Like why people feel like they're suppressed in their ability to be successful? Yeah, and why they wouldn't just automatically say, well, this person will talk to me. You know, they put up this kind of barrier. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, I think it's just a, a, a lack of confidence. Probably. I, I think it's, um, you know, believing what people have always told them and not having an experience to prove themselves wrong. Um, you know, I, I probably thought that way when I was younger too. Um, but I feel like I was probably willing to expose myself a little bit. Um, you know, I, I am usually, uh, you know, I, I'm usually on the, I, I always kind of enter a room as I'm the dumbest guy in there. Yeah. And doing that, I think, has allowed me to be a better active listener, even though I, my active listening skills, I think, are pretty shitty. Um, I at least am not the one that talks the most. Um, and so I get, even though I'm not a really good active listener and I try to get better, it's a focus area for me. I usually learn more than most because I'm talking usually the least. Um, and doing that allows other people to come to you and you're not the one initiating the conversation. And that works well at a bar is like when you're sitting at a bar, you know, you can tell when someone wants to talk to you, right? Like they don't have to say anything like you, you're like, Dude, this person is just waiting for me to just like say one thing so they can tell me the entire life story. <laughs> uh, so I use it as an analogy because it's like you when you let people come to you, it takes off this like stigma and pressure that you need to initiate the conversation. You need to sound smart and you need to like prove a reason why you should be at the table talking to this person. I think that's like a business scenario, but it goes out to so much more than that, including, you know, the scenario you painted with being at a bar. So I think that's kind of the approach I've always taken, which look has worked for me. I'm not saying that's the end all be all, but that's allowed me to kind of cast a wider net with strangers, for example, in a scenario I wouldn't normally probably talk to someone. It's, it's incredible, man. And just talking about, it, it feels good to talk about these things because yeah. you don't always think about the process of just simply talking to somebody, but it is very much like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I admire in, in people, and I was j- just having coincidentally a conversation about meditation last night when I was out with my mate, mm-hmm. but this you cited is uh, Jerry Seinfeld and a David Lynch. Is it the David Lynch? I think it is. The yeah. Jerry incredible. Yeah. You've, you a David Lynch fan? Yeah, of course. Yeah. He, incredible. Just the dude. He's crazy. I, I, I guess I like I meditation is ex- like uh, other than the mindfulness, like the creativity, I think for me is the biggest area that's opened up. So like David Lynch, for example, like the, I just look at those crazy people. I'm like, Oh my God, you're like so brilliant. You're like you blow my mind. Like, how could you think about this? Yeah. How could you come up with this? How did this like manifest in out of someone's mind? Like mind blowing quite literally. So I think like, that part of it just drew me in initially. I was like, if I could get one one millionth of that like creativity into my life, where I feel like I'm totally 
you know, I haven't even started the race yet and my creativeness, um, you know, that's what kind of sucked me in initially amongst some other things. So it was a, an inspiration to spark your creativity. Yeah. It's, it's I, interesting. I, I default to like a very black and white person, I think in terms of like practicality and the way I approach things. Um, so the creative side of me is something I've wanted to focus on. And I think the meditation, um, you know, has helped with that immensely. And I, I don't really know what my, like, what my like level ground is on creativeness anymore, but I know it's exponentially more than it was, you know, seven, eight years ago. Are your outlets for the creativity just the whiskeys and the businesses or is it writing? Is it art? Is it music? Yeah, I, I don't have the whiskey is like my biggest creative outlet whiskey. And, and, and I mean, I guess business, like I, I, I approach business much more creatively uh, as a general way than I did before. I think whiskey is more specifically an immediate, tangible uh, creative outlet. And that goes to, you know, packaging, blending, um, mash bills, you know, uh, like in multiple different ways. It's not just like, what's the most unique way to blend this product, but I think that's really my biggest creative outlet because uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how to play any instruments. I could, I, I mean, I, I couldn't even open a guitar box, let alone, you know, <laughs> press the strings that are in it. So, uh, and I, I've always like, when I dream as a kid, I wanted to be like some type of musician. I've made no advancement in that. So watching a Disney movie is the most creative thing I think I can uh, ever do. You know, as someone who toured for a little bit and has been producing records for a long time, it doesn't, it's not what I cut my teeth on really, maybe creatively, yeah. but financially it certainly was not fruitful, you know, but yeah. I want to talk about blending because this is where creativity really comes to play to your point just a moment ago. And I was talking to Lisa Wicker from Widow Jane a couple of weeks ago, and it turns out she has a background in textile making. She She was doing costumes for some performance area in, in Ohio or something like that. And so that this becomes important in a second, but, and I asked her when she's blending widow Jane, which is, you know, heaven, heaven's door has stuff from Kentucky. They've got stuff from, sorry, you guys have Kentucky, Tennessee and stuff. And we'll talk about that in a second, but it's that same concept. Right. And I asked her what went through her head visually when she was blending whiskeys and she never mm -hmm. made the connection that she thought of textures and cloth. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was incredible because I always think music, but for you, for, for instance, I'm sipping on, and this is, I haven't had this before. This is the double barrel whiskey mm -hmm. from y'all. It's most. Yeah, and that's probably the most complex blend we have by far, uh, which makes people's minds, you know, spin when we talk about it, but yes. Uh, so I'm glad it's, it's very timely, I guess. Tell, so tell me not the physical process, but the mental process for you in crafting something like this? So I, I, I really like when I'm, when I'm blending, I use my, like the, 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 the nose is like huge for me. Um, I, you know, I know that, you know, people have like, people understand now that like their sense of smell has the longest standing, you know, memory, right? Like mm -hmm. you go into a place you haven't been to and, 
10 years, you smell it and it's like your mind just, everything goes back. Uh, and that is by far my strongest sense. And I rely so much upon that with creating visuals in my head to like tangible things. That is like where I, what I rely upon. So I don't think I have, I have visuals that cre- are created in my head through the, through the nosing of different spirit types and mm. using it towards my ideation. Um, so that's what I just rely upon. And then like the last thing I do is, you know, take a sip of it and confirm or deny if it's what I thought it would be. Uh, but I think I rely much more on the, uh, the, the, the nose, uh, probably more so than a lot of other blenders do uh, in the creative process and the, the development phase. That's, that's incredible because I, I interviewed Richard Patterson some time ago and he's known as the nose. Yeah. You know, in the Scotch community. And I, I just never thought about that, that process. So for, for you smells, okay. And in, in your mind, so I'm smelling the, the double bear right now. And so you get a, you get a nice pinch of brightness at the very beginning. And then the corn kind of settles in. And I think that it's a little, a little creamier in terms of the, the scent. But anyway, do you think, do colors pop into your head when you smell these things? Do shapes? No, like, like, I, I go back to like a lot of um, foods, like, you know, like I, I foods and, um, you know, just like, I, I also go back to like, when I, when I smell things, it puts me into a certain experience that I've had in the past. that's either favorable or unfavorable, as well as like sensory experiences that I've had in the past for this, that are good and bad. Um, and I, you know, really am like, was I in a good place when I was having a similar type of smell when I was tasting things of similar type, like smokiness, corn, um, you know, sweeter things. Like even when you, when you get like molasses, maple syrup, uh, even like some like frosting, uh, you know, on, on things. And so I take myself back to a place that's either kind of good or bad. Um, and the mindset that that put me in, so I kind of visualize that when I'm doing it and manifest it in like a experiential form. Yeah. Um, and that really helps me navigate the finished flavor profile really well. So we could say in a sense that these whiskeys are your bottles of nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we can. And I, you know, I think if you, if you're honest with yourself, like, well, like things can taste totally different uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain um, setting than they can, you know, the, the two or three days later with who you're with and um, you know what you did before, what you're doing after, uh, the news you got at work, uh, you know what your weekend plans are, yeah. um, and you know that can have that has a profound effect on your work product at hand. Um, so I think that is a big aspect. And those experiences definitely shape the way that I'm working at that given time and creating a product and what the end result is. It's incredible because that's what an album is. That's what a movie is, you know? So in a sense, whereas you may not be well-versed on guitar chords, you're still able to craft these snapshots of your life that actually can live in perpetuity, you know, via product. I think that that, that tangibility is really interesting and so when you think about, because there's a straight rye as well, and that is a completely different set 
of smells do you does it take you to a completely or rather do you want to be in a certain mindset when you go to blend these whiskeys given how different they smell and how different they taste yeah i i i you know i think it happens naturally um i i don't you know, I want when people are trying it, I want their ex- like when we have a core three, for example, we have a bourbon, a double barrel, and a rye. I very much pride myself, uh, or we pride our products in being true to form and what you would expect from a bourbon, a rye, and a double barrel. So they're not so obscure. You're like, I'm a bourbon drinker and I drank it, and it didn't taste like bourbon, and I was let down. Mm-hmm. So we want it to taste what in within what you would want as that type of whiskey drinker but be very, very different, you know, experiences in themselves. So creating differentiation while being true to form and product type, I think is not easy to do when you have three products that sit next to one another as your core set. Um, but I think, you know, we, we achieve that, you know, pretty well. Um, and, you know, I think for me and my approach to your question earlier is like, you have to remember, like, there's not one right answer. And, and what you experience is not what other people experience. And if you're going to you know, get the best result for someone, you got to put them into a mindset that allows them to better appreciate your product. And I think the first thing they see after color is you know, smelling the product. And if it's a favorable aroma that they're getting from it, and um, you know, the bottle's nice and the story's good, they're going to drink with their eyes and they're going to drink with... Um, what they want to taste and what they feel like they should. And if they're not going in liking, expecting to like what they try, they're not going to like it. Right. Uh, you know, so I think it's really important to kind of get people in the right place before the liquid even touches their lips. I, yeah, I agree. And, and that does beg the question. I love Dickel. Mm-hmm. I love all the stuff that they make. And I've had the privilege of trying some TDG stuff which you guys are putting in some of the the store selections and it was remarkable. Yeah. You know, and it's a truly new thumbprint of flavor in American whiskey. And I, and I really loved it, but people have an expectation about Tennessee, will Tennessee, Tennessee whiskey yeah. outside of Jack Daniels. And what do you think it's, they find it off putting. Why do you think that that is? Well, I, uh, that's a good question. I mean, working at Diageo, I, I thought about this, uh, a thousand different times. Um, you know, I think there hasn't been a brand people can rally behind, uh, from Tennessee other than Jack and, you know, everyone has their own Jack experience and it's usually, <laughs> it's usually overconsumption and not quality. Uh, and you know, you got to dig yourself out of that hole when, everyone's coming in with a frame of mind of, I know Jack Daniels. Um, and they've usually probably taken a shot of it plus two or three or four or five and had a headache in the morning. And you're going to them saying, I have a 50 plus dollar product. You should buy it. And they're like, yeah, the last time I, I drank this stuff, I threw up and it's like, okay, well that's your you know dichotomy you're trying to dig yourself out of. So yeah. my opinion has been, you know, there just hasn't been that, favored history behind the product type that you would, um, you have with like Kentucky or some of the other, you know, sexiness around the, the tour from France or whatever it is. So, you know, it's an uphill battle. And I think 
there's now some really, really strong brands coming out of Tennessee that, you know, in 10 years, it won't be this like, um, you know, little brother to Kentucky. But for all the reasons that you look back in history with what's represented Tennessee, I think it's inevitable. Um, so I'm, I'm happy for us to kind of be a pioneer and and proving people wrong that Tennessee has some amazing product. And just because the distillery is across the state doesn't mean, you know, it's that much better because it has Kentucky versus Tennessee. Cause the reality is like the distillation methods are similar. Mm -hmm. The, the, uh, you know, the, the Vendome stills they're using are the same and the, the farmers are in the exact same region using the, you know, same yellow number two corn that, you know, the other farmer is down the road. So there's not this major difference in practice that they have that would result in one being exponentially better than the other. Yeah, it's a strange perception. Obviously, the flavor is different, and there is a lactic quality to this stuff. Nicole does it, a tickle, you know. But I, I like that, you know. Yeah. And then, so, being a blender, and I can't imagine the kinds of stuff you've had your hands on with those years at Diageo, working with whiskey, but you know, Scotch too, and you worked with a lot of those principal brands. But now you're doing these blends, and as you know. The brand has to be consistent in terms of its aesthetic and the brand has to be consistent in terms of flavor. But at some point, it feels like with all these new brands sourcing from the same spots that you will run out of the baseline components to blend that you needed all along. Is there any truth to that or you have contracts or do you have a concern? We've been laying down barrels and doing our own distillation um, since, you know, the, since 2017. So, you know, we've, we've created the brand so that it'll have consistency around always having a core offering that will remain on the shelves alongside of limited time, time offerings uh, in perpetuity. Um, and I think there's just so much optionality out there to limit yourself to the same product all the time is doing a disservice to our consumers. And I want them to, you know, enjoy our creativity, you know, together. Um, so I, I, I think we've created the brand purposely to have an evolution, um, and appreciate both consistency around having, you know, three similar type products all the time. And then having these one-offs that come in and allow you to enjoy some other, uh, collaboration and blending methodologies, different proof levels, different States, different countries. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that is important in a brand. And I think it prevents a little bit of, uh, you know, a stalemate, I guess, for, um, your product. So, you know, I think we like to make sure they complement one another and it's not totally crazy. Like there's need, like heaven's door needs to stand for something. And these three or four things are what people expect to get, whether it's a everyday product or it's a, you know, one-time bottle coming out each year type thing. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I People, there's lots about you in terms of the work you've done with SIP, SIP, and, and obviously with Heaven's Door. But I, I didn't realize you were also affiliated with the Stolen oh, yeah. Spirits. Because why I mentioned this is, and I believe, I believe it was a 375. There mm -hmm. was a Stolen, I believe they called it, a, you all called it an aged rum. But mm -hmm. it sure tasted like it was from Hamden Estates. And you don't have to confirm nor deny that. But that was one of the best rums I've mm -hmm. ever had. And what, why I mentioned it is that you were trying to craft the best whiskeys. You're selecting things from around the globe. 
And inevitably, are you going to get into agave too? I, 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 that's our plan, uh, as well as some other uh, whiskey types as well. So yeah, with Sip, you know, we 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 learned a lot um, from other brands that we had under management, and we are entrepreneurs, uh, and we definitely are spirit geeks, and that doesn't tie us only to whiskey, but that's been a, a big avenue for us. Uh, so we're looking at agave, we're looking at um, you know overseas and different whiskey categories, looking at some, you know, uh, brandy type products. So I think that for us is something we, we need to do for uh, our own selves. And um, we're, we're launching a brand uh, over in Asia next year, um, which is, will be, you know, a, a fun endeavor as well. Uh, whiskey forward, but some other product types. So yeah, I don't think we're limiting ourselves to whiskey, although that's kind of been uh, our our splash into things that people know better than others. Yeah. Well, I just I figured this yeah. endless disease, and I want to keep calling it a, a disease, but that yeah. as we grow and learn, we become interested in other things because there's so into agave. We'll talk about this more once once we wrap, but that's it. That's that's such an, a vast vast place of flavor. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you can have unaged, when you look at like, you know, just when you look at different agave types that are unaged and they taste so different, it's amazing like what you can do once you age them, blend them, barrel finish them. But like, you know, when you have bourbon, you can do different mash bills and get very different like new make type products, but it's a lot harsher, you know, on the palate than what, like a mezcal would be. So when you look at different, you know, agave types that you can have right from the onset of after distillation being so good, it just like allows your you know, opportunity, you know, going forward to be massive. And I just think the community around mezcal and like and agave is incredible. Like everyone that lives in these in these villages revolves around the agave and, you know, and harvesting it, growing it, distilling it, like their livelihood is made off of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that like community aspect of it is insane uh, and makes it that much better of a finished product. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And again, more to ch- talk about off yeah. the mic about that. So I got a couple questions left for you. Sure. And I think I know the answer to this one, but I never assume. Mm-hmm. Is money ever a factor for you? Not, 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 not having it, but is that ever what drives you? Um, you know, I think I have a fear that I think I have a fear of being poor, which is irrational. Mm. Um, and uh, it's not like something I think about every day, but I've never not thought it couldn't be out of the question, you know? Um, and so I think it's just like this weird thing from my upbringing is like, you know, at the end of the day, I grew up outside of Flint and I saw what like one bad decision could, could lead me to, and it could have easily been me. Um, and you know, I could be a totally different person today. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, I'm never comfortable, uh, financially. Um, and it's not comfortable. Like I always want to make more money. It's always like, I'm thinking worst case scenario. Uh, and so I'm pretty conservative when it comes to like things within my personal life outside of work. And 
it's ironic because I'm doing a lot of venture capital stuff, but outside of work, like when a dollar enters my pocket, I try to you know figure out how I can keep it around for as long as I can. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's a weird kind of quirk that I have and have been able to at least uh, know it's there and and figure out how it helps navigate me. It's good. Self awareness is is key. Yeah. Right. So yeah. last question I've got for you, and you, you don't, you, you actually can't say Bob Dylan. Yeah. So you're anywhere in the world sipping this Heaven's Door double barrel, which 50% ABV, this is a great choice on this whiskey too. It really brings a lot of clarity to it. I'm really enjoying it. But you can sit and have a conversation with anyone living or deceased. Who might you like to have a bourbon with? Yeah, it's probably an unfavorable. Well, it depends who you are, but uh, Michael Jackson. Oh, nice. You got a he favorite record me, of? Yeah, he got he got me in. You know, um, got which CD? I guess uh, which is when I had corded headphones. Uh, and my dad stacked up. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess the 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 album that Bad was on. I mean, I. I, I just liked God uh, and Free Willy came out when White or Black. <laughs> I mean, it was just, there's so many. Um, but you know, like I grew up as a naive kid. Like, just I thought his music was amazing, and like his music videos when things even before like MTV raps was like a thing were mm-hmm. amazing. Like orchestrations of creativity. Uh, so I just thought he was, he, he got me into to music. I loved all of his stuff. And then as I got older and he got older and things went awry, I was like, man, there was a lot more going on, but thank God I was like naive to all that because I was just looking at it only from the music aspect. So I think a conversation with him excites me because it's like, a, there's the music side, but like, how did you come up with all this? What was your inspiration? And then like the adult now dad of two kids is like, what else was going on in your mind that like, you know, led you to all these weird things and nuances that you had in your life. So I think I would just be fascinated to have like a music conversation and then like an adult conversation with the guy. That's a, it's a great, it's a great answer. And I'm glad we can do unpopular things. Yeah. That's okay. You know, and but one bit of trivia, the day I was born rock with me was number one. No, was it? Yeah, my favorite <laughs> Michael Jackson song by by all means, and my favorite video of his, which is the most simplistic. But anyway, Ryan, it's been incredible talking about the process, the way that you think about the world, the passion, and how you interact and interface with stuff. I really take you, really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me. Yeah, well, thanks for being uh, such a good host, man. It's great to talk to you. I really appreciated you know this different kind of take and making it more personal because it's a much better way to get to know someone. And I think uh, it, it's no wonder you have a, such a committed and active listening base. So uh, hats off to uh, what you've put together with the podcast. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. This gives me a little more mental health in these trying times as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little bit of an outlet instead That's of right. uh, talking to your wall. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. All right. Cheers, Ryan. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Ryan Perry. Master Blender for Heaven's Door Whiskey. Some great whiskey. Just tried the double-barreled today. Really enjoyed that. 
it's interesting the so many projects the vast amount of projects that ryan has his fingers in you know there's the angels envy story which we didn't talk about but that acquisition that he had a hand in all this old whiskey that he brokers this is incredible stuff you can find about him but i never really got a sense from those other interviews of what kind of person he is deeply pensive deeply intelligent but very kind you know you can just tell by listening to him talk about his family his friends and the importance of relationships it's all about those relationships so thanks everybody for listening to should v with mike g no matter how your weekend's looking it's probably going to be a hell of a lot better than last week in texas or if you're staring at a kentucky straight bourbon whiskey wood piece and i know i've mentioned that before but it's copyright 2018 campari america please keep dancing